we can get serious now about creating the new kinds of alliances, institutions, and rules that we're going to need, or we can drift. And it's quite possible that we do drift into a similar calamity. And maybe post-calamity, we fix things. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at the New America Foundation and professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is FP columnist Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, Rosa, in our last podcast, you brought up how is Vladimir Putin going to respond to whatever the White House does or whatever an administration does in Syria? I think this begs a, a different question first. How do we think Putin's doing? You know, when Putin decided to go into Syria, the immediate response of the White House, and there was an unattributed quote saying, you know, well, let him knock himself out, I think was the, the quote, or, you know, a bunch of public statements from people saying, oh, Putin's a fool. He's getting into a quagmire. This is his next Vietnam. And now you've got Putin and the forces that he supports for the government gaining ground, retaking Aleppo, making progress towards achieving their goals. And in the areas where Syria still roils and refugees continue to stream out, you might also say he's achieving his unspoken goal of maintaining just enough instability in Syria for it to be a problem for the West as those refugees stream in there. Sounds to me like so far, a couple months into what he's been doing, it's working pretty well. What do you think, Corey? I think that's exactly right. So America's strategy is that a world in which good governance is dominant is a world of freedom and prosperity. And I think Putin's Russia is operating on a strategy that they are most influential when there is uncertainty and concern about security because that maximizes Russia's ability to play a weak hand advantageously. That's what they've done in Crimea. That's what they're trying to do in the Baltics. That's what they're doing in Syria. But I think there is a twist in Syria in that they have saved Bashar al-Assad. You know, he was losing ground. The rebels were making progress both against the Islamic State and against Bashar al-Assad. The Russians intervened, and they've shored Assad up to quiet cheers from authoritarians all over the world. And that makes Putin's Russia somebody to be contended with, even with oil at $26 a barrel. It distracts Russian domestic opinion, he hopes. And he's right. He's got an approval rating that's practically North Korean in its mid-90s positive feedback. And he makes us look as foolish as our policy deserves to make us look. So if you're Putin, this this looks positive. Uh, he shows us ineffectual. You know, the British foreign minister came out last week and said that he believes the Russians were committing war crimes, that they were purposely targeting civilians in Syria, 
And Vladimir Putin's response to that was to say, this is a quote, one should try anything to support the legitimate rulers in Syria, end quote. So they're playing this hard all the way down the line. And the White House may not think the Russians are succeeding, but the Russians sure do, and the Saudis sure do, and the Emiratis sure do, and the Turks sure do, and everybody else in the region sure does. And by the way, American allies as far away as Korea and Japan are worried about what this means for American security guarantees when John Kerry says we can't risk a war with Russia. Well, the, me- the broader message of the administration has been that our response to global crisis is hand-wringing and Hamlet-like reflection, and that what when we are going to go and take an action, it's going to be quite limited, and we are going to be focused on the limitations of our own power. And uh, self-doubt is the number one used tool in our arsenal. Um, Rosa, in my mind, this sends a message. You know, and it may be even more pernicious than propping up a dictator like Assad. And the message is, uh, hey, world, the U.S. is back on its heels and hard power works and unscrupulous application of power, the laser-like focus on your own goals and doing anything to achieve those goals actually works. Look at Putin in Crimea Look at Putin and Assad and Iran in Syria. Pay attention, folks. In the future of this world, anything short of a global thermonuclear war, the regional power that fights dirtiest wins. We already know that works in the short term. Does it work in the long term? Lots of evidence that it doesn't. But but yeah, no, of course. And in, in the short term, it always works to just be the biggest bully on the block. And obviously, Putin is not all that interested in what happens 30 or 40 years from now. He's interested in what happens this year and next year and maybe three or four or five years out. He also operates with the advantage of being the head of an authoritarian regime. You know, if he faces internal dissidents within Russia, he can stamp it out ruthlessly. And that works, too, in the short term, right? President Obama, thankfully, does not have the luxury of doing that, right? On the one hand, I think, of course, absolutely. I mean, Putin Putin is succeeding. Uh, he is succeeding in achieving his goals and confounding ours. Um, is that entirely because we're just a bunch of screw-ups? you know, feckless, self-doubting screw-ups? No, not entirely. Partly. Partly, yes. But it's also because we are a democracy, right? And we're not going to use the tools that he's going to use, either abroad in terms of dropping bombs on civilians on purpose and things like that, nor domestically in terms of stifling dissent. Wait a minute. I don't know what that has to do with being a democracy. Dresden was firebombed. Excuse me. But Dresden was firebombed. Laws have evolved. Yeah, that was the... Excuse me. No, wait a second. So that was me to lean in in my role as peacemaker. Oh, my God. <laughs> we are really in trouble there, but I do want to finish my point, which was okay, go ahead. the United States, a democracy, got to be where it is in the world today thanks to firebombing Dresden and sucking the oxygen out of the air, so hundreds of thousands of civilian people. do we want to go back and and do it again? You're right. We could go back and do it again, and it might work in the short run, but I don't think we want to. Oh, come on. That's not fair. No, 
that's not wait. That was I'm, the obvious response, though. Right? No, I mean, no, it's yeah, not. Sure. It's Dropping not the obvious. People work. It's not. Term. It's not the obvious. It's not the obvious response because it's not the point that I'm making. The point that I'm making is that we always say we're a democracy and we wouldn't do all this bad crap. But this is a country that was built in the back of the genocide against the Indians, the enslavement, Granted. Granted. the enslavement of African-Americans. We do this stuff now. Okay, we can I finish? We can not do the bad, I... nasty, horrific shit we did in the past. Except I don't know that that's actually true. You well, know? I hope it's true, right? Well, no, have you right. been listening to the— repu- actually, have you I been? I do hope it's true, and I don't want that to be I... one of our possible paths to no, world no, nor domination. Do, nor, do, nor, nor do I. But first of all, if you've been listening to the Republican debates where— on the one hand, you have people, you know, advocating carpet bombing of the Middle East. And on yes, the other indeed. hand, you have one candidate saying, torture, we can do better than that. I would do something even worse than waterboarding. Let's say that the possibility exists within us to do this. Am I advocating doing it? Heck no, I'm not. I'm just saying, let's not get up on our high horse and say it's because we're a democracy that we no, don't no, no, take no. action. It's got, it's got nothing to do with feeling good about ourselves. It's just a fact that if we if we wish to adhere to these values, and granted, I'm not sure Donald Trump does, I'm not sure some of the other Republican candidates do, but if we, if we wish to adhere to the values that we have come to hold dear, that we have not always respected in the past, but that we wish to respect now, that that creates limits on our options that Vladimir Putin does not face. That's all. How many people died as a consequence of the invasion of Iraq? We don't know. What's the estimate? Estimates range from about 66,000 to 600,000. Yeah, to 800,000. 800,000. Somewhere in that range, we thought it was okay. So this is not the distant past. We do this all the time, too. But, I'm not advocating wait a minute, it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that's not entirely fair. I mean, I'm, I'm certain, you know, I oppose the invasion of Iraq. I was very critical of how we conducted the war in Iraq. But it, there is a difference between deliberately targeting civilians and an armed conflict, which leads to the deaths of a lot of, you know, that we have to believe in that moral distinction that intention matters. Otherwise, the whole thing kind of goes out the window, right? I don't think you disagree with that, that there is a moral difference between civilian deaths that are unintended and civilian deaths that are intended. There's a moral difference, there's a legal difference. There is not a moral difference between that. There is also not a moral difference between intending to kill people and killing people when you know that it's quite possible that that's going to happen. Let's go back to our original question, though, which is, so Vladimir Putin is kicking butt around the world, and the U.S. is kind of going, oh, no, what do we do? I don't know what we do, because John Kerry is wrong to say we're never, we can't possibly afford to have a war with Russia, but he's probably right to think that. That's the question to which none of us know the answer, is how much is Vladimir Putin bluffing? How much can we call his bluff by suggesting that we are willing to go much further than we are willing to go? I don't, I don't know. So I have a question that I want to ask before we, uh, before we head into Vladimir Putin's head which is I share the concern about the enfeeblement of free societies by limiting ourselves so much in the conduct of war that we lose the ability to win them, right, which is a conversation we have in defense circles a whole lot. 
And it seems to me, though, that there's a lot more middle ground than very often the debate creates a perception of. And let me just suggest, I was interviewing George Schultz this week for a project that I'm doing with Will Wexler at the Center for American Progress and at Hoover. And I was reminded that the Reagan administration carried out three successful regime changes and nearly had a fourth, all without any violence, because they were willing to hold their noses and do something extremely unpalatable to free societies, which is give a golden parachute to dictators. Marcos in the Philippines, we created a get-out-of-jail-free card for bad guys because we thought it was the best option for helping societies transition to better governance. So my question is, is that still possible as a tool for the United States, or do you think that the values that Rosa has been championing of free societies made so much progress in the public mind that it would be the equivalent of an out-of-bounds, old-fashioned tool. Not only is it possible, it's going to happen. That's what's going to happen in Syria. Assad's going to get a free pass. He's going to go to Boca Raton. He's going to, exactly, or someplace on the Black Sea. It's what's going to happen in Afghanistan, where we're going to let the Taliban back in and do whatever the heck that they want, just so long as we can get out of town quickly. And it's going to happen across the Middle East, where in every case that we see a nasty dictator who at least will keep a lid on things, we're going to take that over forces of reform that may not have a very strong grip on things. And we're going to hold our nose and we're going to offer rhetoric that says something different. And the hypocrisy conference can study it for years to come. This is the way we do things. I'm not wow. saying... Wow. Okay. So both of you still think that's a that. live option. It's not only a live option, I think it's the likely option. And I think it's the likely option, regardless of which political party is in power in the United States. I have to say, I think we've sort of drifted. And as the host here, I'd like to pull it back a little bit because, you know, the issue isn't really like what are the rules and how bad we can play. The issue actually ought to be do you have to go and engage at the lowest common denominator, at the regional level, to counteract these people? Or are there alternatives? And I think one of the alternatives that worked pretty well during the Cold War was the actual prospect of a major conflict, which deterred people from doing too much that was too dangerous because the stakes went up too high. I think another alternative, which is, of course, much more appealing to me and wild-eyed and idealistic and crazy, is a global system of law that we actually enforce and that all the governments of the world work together in a cooperative way to penalize countries that step out of line in this. But both of those things and any other option that we require or any other option we may want to explore requires leadership from the strongest nation on earth and political collaboration between that country and other powerful nations to get done. And you know, we have two choices. We can go and intervene in a nasty way, or we can work our asses off diplomatically to try to put pressure on these governments effectively. We haven't done either of those two things. Well, that's because we have three choices, with the two you just laid out and the third choice, which is do what we've been doing, which is nothing. And that's the choice we've made. We've made the choice to muddle along and keep our fingers crossed and kind of hope nothing too horrible happens till some other person has to take responsibility for it. And that, you know, that's a choice, right? And I think it's a deliberate choice. It definitely is a deliberate choice. Let me ask you a question, Corey. Does Vladimir Putin face a different 
future with a new president? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, I think it does. Let me first start off by defending the administration with its reset towards the Russians. Say what? I feel Say, you heard, heard that I right, think there's, David. there's interference. You heard that, <laughs> you heard that right. Um, I feel like one of the advantages of the American system is that every time you have a new administration, you ought always to talk up the possibilities for reset where you think it's going to be advantageous to American national interests. And so, so I don't object to the Obama administration trying to reset relations with the Russians in 2008. I think they hung in there on the policy long after it should have been clear that they should be tacking towards less cooperation and more confrontation. And I think we are now at a point where we ought to be a lot more confrontational with the Russians. We ought to be telling them, for example, in Syria, telling them what we intend to do. I personally advocate creation of safe areas for Syrians uh, internal to Syria along the borders of Turkey, Turkey and Jordan. And we ought to protect and police those and tell the Russians that any interference on their part will be met with force. Um, because I think what we, are, what we would be doing is defensible in our interests and the Russians should encroach on it and their peril. That said, we shouldn't let, you know, if, if we shoot down a Russian airplane, we ought to be trying to manage the crisis at the lowest possible level. But I still think the Putin's Russia would, would be, it would be understandable if Putin's Russia drew from American foreign policy in the last seven years that we are unwilling to confront behavior that accrues risk to American security and destabilizes the international order. And I do think a different president, possibly of either party, would take a much stronger line on that. I am confident Hillary Clinton would, and I think most of the Republican candidates would. What do you think, Rosa? No, I think Corey's right, actually. And I think she's right both in her prediction of what the likely next president, whoever that is, we know who it's. We don't. We know who it's not going to be. It's not going to be Barack Obama would do. But I think she. She. She probably also is right that we. We have done a little too much, making it clear to Putin that we're just going to wring our hands no matter what he does. And you know, I don't. I don't think Putin, dumb as it was for John Kerry to say we can't afford a war with Russia. I think Vladimir Putin has got to be going. You know, going back home and saying to himself and his close advisors, we can't afford a war with the United States, and we haven't done any calling of his bluff. And and we we can and we should, and the next president probably will. We may or may not have touched upon this in past podcasts, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If Russia decided to do in the Baltics what it did in Crimea, do you think that the United States or NATO would take action? Yes, I do. I think well, the that's, United that's States would take action, take action. And I think once it was clear that the United States was taking action, NATO allies would take action because they feared that if they didn't, it would be the end of NATO on which they all individually rely for their security. 
but it would be a tough slog at NATO. You would have a hard time getting the Belgians and getting the Italians and getting others on board. I've asked this question of a lot of senior military officers off the record, and I have to tell you the answer was not as assured as yours just was. I think they're right to worry about it. I worry about it as well. And if I were the American military, I would be watching budgets in Europe continue to decline, uh, defense spending in Europe continue to decline, Europeans continually expecting the United States to do more while they do less, and it's exasperating. I absolutely share their frustration and I share their cynicism about the NATO allies, but it's not going to be a military choice. It's going to be a political choice if a NATO country gets invaded. And I have a difficult time seeing the German chancellor, for example. But, but what if it doesn't get invaded? What if uh, nationalists in uh, exactly NATO countries you know, do That's... what they did in Ukraine? And they just say, hey, we want to be closer to our Russian brothers. And, and, and no one in a Russian uniform appears anywhere near this. And yet... We know the script. We know how it's playing out. And it's just a replay of Ukraine. There, yes, that's the hardest scenario. But it's also the most likely scenario. It is the most, yeah. And it brings to light the point that governance, good governance, strong civil society, a sense of inclusiveness by citizens in their governments is all of our best defense against all of the security challenges we're worried about. Absolutely. But that doesn't tell us what to do if David's scenario comes true. And I think, I think absolutely the scenario David laid out in which, in which clearly Russia is the puppet master, but equally clearly Russia has just enough desire to avoid an open confrontation that they make significant efforts to preserve plausible deniability, even if it's completely implausible. And does the U.S. take action? Uh, you know, I think even in an overt Russian invasion, take action covers a lot of stuff. I'm not sure that any U.S. president from either party would take action if that meant a direct military confrontation. I think the taking action would probably take the form of something less than that. It would take the form of reinforcing the border. It would take the form of, well, we're, you know, in, we are putting advisors into the situation, et cetera, et cetera. But, but, you know, I frankly think Putin probably could get away with an overt invasion, and he would almost certainly get away way with a Ukraine-style little green men type and, of invasion. And that is the 64... No, but wait a second. That's the $64,000 question, because if Vladimir Putin agrees with you and yes. thinks that he can do that and needs to do it, as he did in 2008 in Georgia and subsequently in Ukraine, and he is miscalculating, that'll be the most dangerous moment that yes. Europe has I faced think since Vladimir the end. Putin thinks he can do it, and I think he's right to think he can do it. But I think, I think luckily for us, Vladimir Putin probably also thinks he doesn't need to do it and probably shouldn't do it. You know, that, that he is, I, I think he has got to be concerned about overextension. The Ukraine situation cost Russia a lot in purely, in purely uh, monetary terms. Syria is costing Russia a lot in purely monetary terms. It, it, it's advancing their strategic goals, but it is putting a strain on their budgets, which are not unlimited. You know, I, I think that, frankly, the U.S., we, we and Europe may get lucky in that he may very well, I hope he will, he probably will decide that it's not worth it for him to do it because it's just too complicated. But I don't think that's because he thinks he couldn't get away with it politically and militarily. I would add one other thing. Um, I, I 
agree with the worry about about what Putin might or might not think, and I agree with with the risk of miscalculation being extraordinarily high, given how emboldened Putin appears to be. But uh, direct counter to Russian pressure on a Baltic state isn't our only option. And we have a pretty good asymmetric game we can play by driving up the cost to the Russia. Russia, too, is a is a multicultural society. Russia has a lot of weak security points on its borders and its margins, which we could drive the cost up to them. Even yeah, I have a good by, idea. We could start funding uh, extremist Islamic uh, terror attacks on the Russians, <laughs> which worked incredibly well in Afghanistan in the 1980s. That's a, that's so, a great strategy, but, but there are other... Russia eight- wins the award for the Plant your sword like a Scottish Highlander and fight this ground. <laughs> well played, Rosa. Well, You're the, right. We could do that. The, no, it's a, there's but, lots of other stuff that we could actually do short of that to drive yeah, the I, I, I'm less confident than you are, Corey, in our ability to you get the asymmetric me, stuff right. Yeah, but I tell you, there are a couple of places in the world where people could misplay based on what the U.S. has done or play and succeed in a damaging way. And I'll tell you another one. You know, if if there were a meeting between the Russians and the Iranians and they were sort of looking at, well, we're making headway here in Syria, we're making headway in Iraq, we've got other kinds of plans, but we've got one problem, and the problem is the price of oil is too low. Is it within their power to raise the price of oil via threats or saber-rattling towards, for example, the Saudis? And the answer is, oh, yes, very definitely within their power. And if they felt that they could do so with relative impunity from the security front, why should they not? If they could do it, why haven't they done it? Well, first of all, the Iranians haven't needed to. The Iranians just got this giant windfall. Uh, Okay, so there's the timing issue with the Iranians. Yeah, fair enough. And, you know, Russia has been playing the you know, let them eat enhanced national prestige card for a while. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and hence Putin's sort of, you know, popularity rating. But I'm just saying in the, in the event that, that things got a little dicey, that's another card that could be played. All of these things have to do with the apparent vacuum or the lack of concern that local aggressors might have that there would be a penalty. It doesn't have to be a U.S. imposed penalty. I blame, you know, I mean, I think the international system has got a problem here. But I, I think basically people think that in their own neighborhoods they can do whatever they want. And certainly in Africa that's been true. And certainly in Myanmar it seems to be true. And certainly it seems to be true in the Middle East now and on the borders of Russia. It's a grim assessment that I agree with, David. Yeah, likewise. Well, isn't that cheerful? Um, But, but, I mean, David, this goes back to earlier, the two choices. We could either act like Putin or we could get serious about trying to create a stronger and more powerful and more effective global governance system. And as I said, we've manifestly chosen the third path, which is do nothing. If you say, well, which would be the best path to go down, it would be your choice, too, of trying to put every ounce of energy that we have into creating an international system that works better both now and in the future, because all of the trends that we've been talking about, including the relative decline of U.S. power, are going to continue. If we continue on the current path, we are screwed. There's no two ways about it.
Ron, I think it's absolutely true, and I think the reality is that the international system was invented in 1945, which was, you know, 70 years ago, and uh, had served us fairly well for the 70 years, but is not suited to the challenges that we face. The institutions we have, like the UN, are designed to be weak. The alliances that we have are designed to face threats that have evolved rather dramatically. The will of the United States, the power structure of the world, given the rise of China and other emerging markets, all these things have changed, but the institutions haven't changed and it hasn't been a priority. And that's why I think one of the strategic priorities for the next president of the United States ought to be rethinking that global order and investing heavily in leading a refurbishment of the global order doesn't have to be everything at once. I'd start with the Atlantic Alliance, but I'd also then start looking at what I characterize as the Indo-Pacific region and recognize that there are going to be new special relationships with countries like India and Australia and so forth that are going to be essential to us, not in containing China, because we shouldn't be doing that, but in counterbalancing and ensuring that there's a kind of a harmonious balance in that part of the world. Because frankly, in order to deal with a lot of the problems that we're going to have to deal with going forward, we need the Chinese to be our partner. But this requires global strategic thinking. And I have to say, I was just up at a very well-known university on the banks of the Charles River and talking... right? Exactly. I was talking to them about, you know, What's being studied? What's being talked about? And, you know, you you guys are both affiliated with universities. The number of people who actually think and talk about strategy as their main goal is so small that I really worry for us. You know, people focus on tactics. People focus on specialties. But people aren't focusing on the big picture. Am I just kind of, you know, old-fashioned, or is this really a concern that we ought to address? You are old-fashioned, and it's extremely endearing, and you are also right. We could have a whole podcast series on the way in which American higher education is failing. One of the ways in which it is failing is that it's unfashionable to teach courses on military history, on strategy, on civil-military relations. It's very fashionable to teach courses on narrow areas of formerly unattended um, experience. And it's not that we shouldn't also teach formerly unattended experience. It's that we are doing it at the expense of teaching people critical thinking and the integration of elements of national power and how much does it actually matter to have economic strength for your military power. Those kinds of big questions are rarely addressed in university environments, and it's bad for us as a strategic community. Rosa? Well, I I don't know. I'm... I'm, I'm slightly less pessimistic about the state of the university, and maybe this is just because Georgetown is in Washington and we have the School of Foreign Service and so forth. I think, I think certainly there's, there's both a lot of student interest and, and faculty interest in courses in precisely the issues that Corey outlines, but that, that, that may be an outlier. I, I don't know. More broadly, David, you're, you're absolutely right that, that as a nation, leaving aside what responsibility lies with universities, et cetera, we are inattentive to issues of strategy. It, it's always depressing to me whenever I, I read. I'm always an optimist. I, I'm constantly getting these reports land on my desk. They come in the mail or whatever. 
you know, that say a new American strategy for this, that, or the other thing. And I open them with always a little bit of hope in my heart. And then it's just a little <laughs> list of tactics, you know, with no right. particular strategic vision whatsoever. And, and I don't think people understand what we mean by strategy. I think that the White House does not actually think that strategy is important. I think that they've made it clear that they think that the notion of grand strategy in particular is just sort of ridiculous and pie in the sky and unfeasible. In some ways, it's, it's a massive national failure of imagination, right? I mean, and it's I not that, that there's nothing new about that. that. But, I, you know, when I think of, I mean, David, you gave as the example, obviously, the the current international system that we in, we inhabit dates to the end of World War II. The need for that system was perfectly clear in 1938, but it took 60 million dead people for the world to say, oh, gosh, maybe we really need to get serious about that now. You know, and I think that, that we're at a similar moment in, in, in history, you know, to use an overused uh, cliche, you know, we're at, we're at a crossroads. We can get serious now about creating the new kinds of alliances, institutions, and rules that we're going to need. Or we can drift, which is what we're doing now. We can choose to drift. And it's quite possible that we do drift into a similar calamity. You know, and maybe post-calamity we fix things. It is just a massive failure of imagination, both an inability to imagine the possibilities for calamity, which are quite real, and an inability to imagine anything different than the kind of path dependence that we're, 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 now, we're now on. Absolutely right. We've now achieved two of the primary goals that we have in each of these podcasts. One is to have all the guests agree with me. <laughs> and two is to have a public display of extreme nerdiness from one of the guests. And the notion <laughs> that... It wasn't you. It was Rosa. Rosa sitting at home, desperately going through her mail eagerly oh, opening oh, up the little, you know, envelope that, that she gets from like, you know, Brookings going, oh my God, a new strategy. I'm so excited. You know, hope springs eternal, David. <laughs> you know what makes it so funny? David does the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. If any, if, if I got any mail. <laughs> Go to the mailbox each day, look inside, pat around, hoping there's something in there. You know, well, I do get a lot of catalogs too. Yeah, yeah. Those are actually usually more more entrancing at the end of the day than the reports yeah. on new strategies. I just have dust bunnies in my mailbox. Anyway, <laughs> guys, it's been great. We've actually covered some substantial issues here. Thank you very much, and we hope that all of you who are listening will come back soon for another illuminating, if nerdy, episode of. The Editor's Roundtable. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.